Okay, as we forewarned you, uh, this is an evening for um, questions, so it's an opportunity for you to ask anything about the retreat, really. Anything that's come up within the retreat, any questions and queries and anything that we've said that's not comprehensible or you want to have a little bit more detail on or just comments, really, about how it has been. Um, so this is an opportunity for you to, as I say, really engage with us. After tomorrow, we'll just talk at you. So. <laughs> Yes, Simon at the back. <laughs> well, there's this vacuum cleaner that you <laughs> put in the ear. No. <laughs> there isn't. There is, there's no magic wand. Uh, of getting rid of stuff that goes round and round. As I, you know, as I was joking to you on the first evening, the mind is a perfect recycling organ. Uh, it recycles stuff again and again and again and again. Um, it's almost like sit back and watch the show. You know, sit back and enjoy the show. Don't get too caught up with what's going on. You know, the clinging. The clinging really takes us into other places, but you can just watch whatever is there as it circles around, as it comes back again. I don't know if this is what's happening to you. Yeah, as it circles around and comes back again. Just watch it. There's no need for us to become reactive, although that's easier said than done, as you all probably know. You know but there is no reason why when we take that little stance of stepping back and beginning to observe whatever it is, whatever thought processes are there, whatever even strong emotions are there, that we need get caught up with them. And if we do get caught up with them, no problem. I mean, it's not really a big deal. What we do is we try to come back to that position of observer again, often by focusing on our breath, coming down just into, even if it's not the breath that's um, useful for you, you can come down into a strong sensation somewhere in the body and just stay with that to ground yourself again. And what the mind will do, of course, is it'll drift away, and then you'll see this stuff again, and you might be able to observe it and come back. And it's kind of stuff, it's the sort of instructions in general that we've been giving to you, but there is no magic wand. There's nothing that's going to dispel this. In a way, what I tend to think happens is um, either the thoughts get tired or you get tired. Something happens. Um, where they start to get slower and slower. They're a bit like, I don't know if you've noticed, but thoughts are a bit like spoilt children. The more attention you pay to them, the worse it gets. Um, and the more attention we give to our thoughts in getting caught up with them, trying to sort it, so trying to solve them, the worse it can become. If we can get just that little distance from it, this little piece of distanciation where we stand back and we watch, take a position of observer, there's a huge, huge, huge difference. As I've said to quite a few of the groups um, that I've been speaking to over the last few days, there's an enormous difference between thinking something, i.e. being caught up in it, and observing it. It doesn't sound like much, does it? But actually it makes a huge difference in our experience when we are being caught up, let's take a strong emotion such as being angry, 
And then all hosts of other thoughts come in, such as the justification of why I'm angry, and then the stories and the narratives that surround and hold that anger in place, to just observing that there is anger present at this moment in time. It's a huge difference, but it doesn't sound a lot. In many ways, we're, you know, in doing that, it's a kind of Copernican revolution. You know, we no longer just being caught up in what's going on, but just beginning to take that little position of the observer. I'm sure you've got something to say, Jenny. The, the only thing I would add is just that wish to get rid of it is just the other side of clinging, which is a kind of aversion, and often is, is subtly feeding it. You know, it's just allowing it to play itself out. And when we stop fueling it, it, it eventually tires. But, you know, if we try not to think something, immediately it's there. I said to one of the groups, try not to think about pink elephants for the next five minutes. You know, so... Um, just that feeling of, yeah, eventually I've heard this. I've seen this movie enough times. I don't want to see it again. And it just goes. Thank you. A question right at the back. Um, yeah, so the question is, is something that maybe I said. <laughs> We've got it on tape. <laughs> we, 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 we strive less when we see the body and mind as one. I, it was something about, if I remember, the more embodied we are, the more we're in touch with our body or the more kind of connected mind and body, the less driven we are by thoughts and feelings. I think that's, was, that's what I vaguely remember saying so so the the feeling was that what i was getting at was that when we're completely lost like the previous question in in a loop of thoughts rumination proliferation often fueled by strong emotion when we're lost in that we're often completely out of touch with our body it's just going on up here and just you know bringing attention into the body being more, just being more aware of our body and all our experience means that we're less likely to, to just react out of those thoughts and feelings. Um, that body awareness gives us that moment to, it supports that observer stance really that Don's talking about. I think that's what I meant. Does that, does that make more sense? Yeah. Just on the back of that, just a, a little comment. I actually came across an interesting quote quite recently that amused me and actually has a little bit of a bearing on just what Jenny's talking about here, which is, it's a particular philosopher, a French philosopher, who said, I have no problem with the body. I have no problem with the mind. The problem I have is with the neck. <laughs> it gives the illusion of separateness. <laughs> Thank you. 
I mean, the, the word that we often use, we, we say mind in English, but the, the word will come on to this the day after tomorrow, but the word in Pali that we use is chitta, which impl implies an emotional mind. So it really is mind and heart. It's, it's not so split, perhaps, in, in, in the, the ancient Indian culture. Um, and heart, you know, we feel heart, although emotions are probably in the brain somewhere too, but that sense of heart for me does help to connect. Um, <laughs> helps with the neck <laughs> issue. <laughs> so, is that is that what you what you mean? Yes, it's almost yeah. like because I was thinking rather than stepping away almost, it's uh, yeah. into yeah. What we're, what we're looking to avoid is being completely lost in it. It's, it's that capacity to be aware. But, if, you know, if that speaks to you more, that, I think that's fine. I haven't, again, really got much to add to that. I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, this word that would usually... If you look through most translations of Buddhist texts, you'll find this term, chitta, translated as mind. However, it does have this dual connotation actually. And interesting, in, interestingly, in Thai, they actually emphasize the heart element in Thai, rather than the mind element here. But it does have that dual connotation of heart-mind. And I remember just my times in Asia, you know, when I was undergoing training in Asia, I would have, often have teachers say to me, trouble with you Westerners, you're always thinking with this. You're never thinking with this. You know, as, we, as if we kind of there's a disconnect between the intellect and emotion somehow. We, we disconnect the two. And the integrated personality, which I think is really partly what the Buddha is about, the integrated personality actually has both of those dimensions. And often, I used to find this quite amusing sometimes because you know, some of the study that I was involved in was very intellectual, technical, stuff and we debated it for hours and hours on uh, in a day and you'd read some of this stuff and right at the end of the of this really difficult text which you know it's taken me days to go through you'd find a little passage like um if having read this text the hairs on the back of your neck haven't stood up you haven't understood it <laughs> yeah because it was meant to in other words touch you as well as stimulate you intellectually and so I think that that's often what we suffer from, that disconnect between heart and mind. The intellect is kept very separate and compartmentalized from the emotion. And it's that getting together of our rational intellectual faculties, which there's no undermining of in this tradition. They're fantastic. We just don't have to live in them constantly. That's all. Equally, we don't have to live in just a kind of wallowing emotional state continuously. The balance, balanced, heart, the balanced mind is one of heart and mind together uh, within this. So I don't know if that kind of responds to your question as well. Yeah. There's a question over here. Yeah. I had a question about um, uh, the compassion piece that Jenny spoke about and it being an action or it being um, not something that you feel but something that you do. That was something I said last night. Mm. action um, 
at least earlier in the day, didn't really suffice or, or didn't, didn't do much. Later this evening after dinner, sitting outside in the sun and just feeling the ground beneath me, I could feel myself being able to offer myself meta from that context. And I wondered, um, I wondered about the lines between seeking sensual pleasure and actually doing an act of, of kindness towards yourself or compassion. Mm -hmm. And also, how, how to cultivate this more with action. Is it only a phrase, is it only when, um, I don't know, it's been so formalized. I'm just mm -hmm. wondering if we could, can, is it possible to think out of the box in terms of offering yourself meta? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, actually, it was the comment that I made last night, actually, that it's about doing something. Compassion and, and metta, particularly compassion, is about doing something. It actually, even the etymology of the Sanskrit Pali root is the word to do, uh, to engage in action here. And I think it's nice for overcoming our sense, and this is the reason why I said it, our sense of everything has to be authenticated by the mind. Um, we live, I think, in the Western world, particularly under a myth of authenticity, which is, I will only do what I feel. Um, as, you know, I had teachers in my past who used to say to me, actually, if that was the case, you would sit around probably for years and nothing would happen. You know, if you wait for that moment of compassion to come upon you, you know, you could wait the whole of your lifetime. So go out and do it. And that was the kind of injunction here. But coming back to the bulk of your question, really, which was about is there other ways of expressing it other than just the formal thing? I think there is. Yes, of course there is. If we're talking about a doing, then it's not just about uttering phrases to ourselves. These are ways of inclining the mind. This is a phrase that the Buddha uses, particularly in these early texts. It's like a behavioral gesture with the mind, a gesture of goodwill towards yourself and towards others, which is formalized into those phrases so that we can, if you like, do a little experiment. You know what I was saying on the first, you know, the first few nights of engaging in a little experiment. See what happens. This, this is the way to approach, I think, meta practice, is actually just to see what happens in that practice. If nothing happens, that is fine. You know, that is fine. In terms of actually caring for ourselves and showing kindness towards ourselves, of course. Then you know, perhaps sometimes, if you're tired or overwrought or whatever it is. Um, it's probably not a good idea to embark on yet another project. That's probably not being kind to yourself. Being kind to yourself might be taking some time and going lying in the sun or sitting and watching something if you really want to, but know that you're doing it. This is the mindful approach to it. It's not that it's, you know, somehow you're slipping. Into, I think there's kind of Protestantism often that's involved in, you know, we'll give ourselves a hard time because, you know, it can't be doing us any good unless it really hurts. <laughs> that's not particularly the Buddhist way. The Buddhist way is to, to actually show gestures of kindness towards yourself, and some of those will be sensual gestures. We are sensory beings, and one of the things I was trying to suggest the other day is that we can appreciate being sensory beings. We can appreciate the sun on us, just don't want it all the time, particularly if you don't li if you live in England. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not a good idea um, because that's going to create dukkha when you don't get it. 
And so there's nothing wrong with the senses. This is not the problem. Um, it's not that kind of almost yogic retreat that you can have in, in some yoga traditions of the idea you kind of retreat like a little tortoise into its shell, you know, by withdrawing all the senses. And they call it pratyahara. Um, that's not what's involved here. It's really, in a sense, guarding the senses from slipping over in, from appreciation into wanting. Yeah? So it's perfectly fine to do that. And these gestures of kindness towards ourselves can be sensory gestures. Just guard that they don't slip over into desperately wanting more of it. Here. So I think there's many ways. In fact, I would say, you know, you could sit down, say these phrases to yourself, and still give yourself a hard time. Yeah. And many people do. You know, it's like, I'll sit down and do my meta practice, and then I'll go out and be really tough with myself. There's not a lot of learning in that. It's actually a gest of what I really say, and I think this is why I really want to bring it back to embodiment as well again, because it's the gestures of kindness that we give to ourselves. It's a gestural sense of being in this world that I think is really, really important. So that can take many, many forms, such as the example you gave this evening. Yeah. No. I'm not sure I have anything to add, although I have two or three conversations today about that balance between wanting to be kinder to ourselves and, and we can get a little bit of a fear that we might slip into clinging. Well, of course, sometimes we will. Sometimes we'll get it wrong. You know, Sometimes we don't know that balance, but it's just all an inquiry. So when you're lying, say, feeling supported and the sun's out, just notice what happens when the sun goes away or notice what happens when it changes. Um, but I, yeah, I think there is a, a danger that we hear this injunction not to crave or not to cling can can add to a, a, a bit of a, that feeling. Yeah, if it doesn't hurt, it's not good for you, and that's certainly not what's what's meant. Mm. I also find it sometimes with the phrases sometimes helpful when I'm out and about. You know, if I'm on the tube and I can't get a seat and it's hot and sweaty. And I could easily get into quite negativity about the people around, just to look at a complete stranger and say in my heart, may you be well, may you be peaceful. You know, just slightly can shift um, what's, what's going on. Um, but the, yeah, they can get a bit formulaic, as you say. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. you should take the questions because I can't really see people at the back of the room. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, you're on. Yeah, you're on. Yes, you're, you're on. on. <laughs> Right, so it's <laughs> that's a bit that's a bit stereotyped. <laughs> Get the woman to answer. Um, yeah, big big issue. I mean, the 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 the, the 
Buddhist tradition, like all religious traditions, has been handed down in, in a patriarchal culture and all sorts of accretions. Um, and I think that we, you know, there are scholars who've done some really interesting work trying to actually really unpick what was actually going on. There's lots of contradictions in the texts. Um, at the, in the very beginning, there's a text where just after the Buddha's awakening, um, he was tempted by the, the, the um, figure that's kind of the Buddhist devil, but he's more mischievous than, than evil Mara, who said, okay, you're awakened now, so why don't you just die, basically? Enter your final nirvana. And the Buddha said, I won't leave this earth until all my followers, monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen, are able to teach and, and awakened and able to spread the Dharma which contradicts the story that later he was reluctant to ordain women. So who knows? He did have a bhikkhuni. You know, there were bhikkhunis in ancient India, which was probably quite radical. So um, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there, there are things that we need to, to look for. Particularly, I think, what's sad is when some of that gets imported into the West. Um, and there are still some issues in some of the traditions about gender. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think the essence of the psychology of the Buddhist teaching, we can, we can leave those accretions behind. There are some very interesting um, books. There's a book by Rita Gross called Buddhism After Patriarchy, which kind of tries to re-envisage re what Buddhism would look like without, without that. Um, but yeah, it's there, you know, and, and it's, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say really. I, I, I think it's a shame if it puts us off what's actually a very liberating and, and beautiful and helpful tradition. I'm going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree totally with what um, Jenny has already said. I mean, it's very interesting as a tradition that you've got this, and I think it's, you've got this patriarchal succession handed down from the time of the Buddha. And you have to remember India was a very, very patriarchal society at that stage. If there was any reluctance historically to ordain women, I think it was just knowing what a tough time they were going to get. You know, this was absolutely, you know, almost outside the bounds for women to be engaged in a mendicant tradition. And you see this reflected in the rules for the, for the nuns, that they're to travel in pairs, they're not to travel alone, and things like this, because you know that they're going to get hassled. They know they're going to have a hard time. And there's a lot of that cultural stuff coming in which influences um, attitudes to women in early Buddhism. I think you get re, uh, reinsertion of ideas and that which were pre-Buddhist coming into Buddhism over its history. And I think that places women in a particular position as we've got it in what I call religious Buddhism as we see it in Asian culture to this day. What is interesting, again, is another anomaly, and I'm quite surprised in many ways that Jenny didn't mention it, is we actually have this collection of poems. Yeah. Something called the, the Terigata, which actually is the poems of awakened women, you know, which are wonderful poems. And they're actually gives you a very good clue. They, they go from very, very small two, three-line verses to quite long verses. And they give a very good idea of what it was like for these early women nuns um, to live in ancient India. It was a tough time. 
And there's one that always strikes me. I love it. I love reciting it as well. There's one that strikes me. It says, um, it's one particular nun speaking. She says, free, free, absolutely free, free of three things, the mortar, the pestle, and my crook-backed husband. <laughs> <laughs> But in a way, we laugh, but that's quite serious, you know, because it's actually getting rid of the drudgery that the women had inflicted on them, and still do to a great extent in you know, vast portions of the world, let alone India, um, to this day. And so I think it was an acknowledgement that women would have a tough time within that tradition just simply by being women, because they were considered to be very low in Indian society, at that period of history as well. So it's a big historical thing. The thing I totally agree with um, Jenny about is we have no reason to import any of this nonsense at all into the Western world. Um, this is very culturally, historically contextual, and it should be left there within that. I mean, if the Asian traditions are going to sort themselves out, let them do it in their own time. Actually, interesting, some pressure comes from the West onto those Asian traditions that actually attitudes to women ought to reform. Sometimes the way we go at it is a little bit stridently and actually makes them clam up even further. Um, but I think it will change, um, but there's no reason for it to be at all within any forms of Western Buddhism. So when you read that stuff, just think of it as historical, cultural, end of story. That would be my advice when you come across that sort of thing in, in the texts. Yeah, please. Um, just following on from that before asking the question, did you take Church of England until about two weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. The only trouble the only trouble is Buddhism had a five hundred year head start. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is, you know, it really, really doesn't have to be slow. It, it's, it's a, it's partly it gets slightly contagious. You know, we all see everyone else, like Shaun of the Dead, somebody said. <laughs> and so we think, well, it must be slow. It can be very beautiful to walk slowly. And, you know, I certainly tend to do it quite slowly. But the, the only, the, the only real... Um, criterion is what helps you to be aware and so it, you know it might just be speed it up a little bit walk more if you don't normally have pain walking around the place then you know do it a little more at your normal speed um, and also because we're not moving much there is more stiffness and some stretches and yoga and things can help but again I don't have a lot to add to that I think that's right Remember the whole point about the walking is not walking slowly, it's mindful walking. That's what we're doing. We're engaging in mindful walking. 
Mindful walking does not have to be slow. Mindful walking can be your normal walking speed if you wanted to. It just helps sometimes to take it down just slightly below normal walking speed so you can observe things a little bit more closely, that's all. So I would suggest if you are getting pain by walking, I don't know how fast or slow you're walking, but you know, if you're walking extremely slow and you're getting pain, speed it up. Go to your normal walking pace and then just take it down just a little notch and, and just to see how that feels. I don't actually know where this kind of extremely exaggerated slow walking actually starts. It always reminds me of the march to the scaffold, a lot of it. Um, in fact, the, the Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah, the first time he ever saw a Western person doing walking meditation, rushed up to them and said, are you all right? <laughs> <laughs> he really thought something was up you know, the speed that the which they were doing it so you know I just go to a kind of more normal play around experiment see how mindful you can stay when you speed up if you feel that the pain is lessening reduce it a bit more if it comes back speed it up you know work with work with your body mind conditions uh, that's part of the mindfulness as well I mean, part of some, one of the instructions perhaps that hasn't been given so much is actually you can vary your speed according to your mental states too. So if you've got a very speedy mind that's happening and it's buzzing all over the place and interested in this and thinking a thought and that, sometimes it's very good to slow things down, to really kind of calm them down a bit and slow things down. If your mind is dull, lethargic, you need to move faster. You need to get some energy into it. To, so you're looking at the state of mind-body and varying the speed accordingly, and particularly, I think, if you've got physical pain there too. Yeah. Please. Do you want to go to the first bit? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's, I'll, do, I'll kind of address the first bit because it seems there's quite a lot in that particular question. The first part about whether, you know, we're talking about changing ourselves but not changing outside. Well, let's get this clear, what's going on here. It's not that we can't change the outside world. Of course we can. There are certain things that we can certainly change. Um... And the Buddha is certainly not asking us to take a position of, of quietude 
of doing nothing. He's not asking. In fact, in many ways, within his own time, the Buddha can be seen as a social reformer. You know, he's cutting across caste in India, um, in particular, by taking no credence. He's actually redefining things in social terms. He's trying to um, bring ethics as a major component into Indian social life at that period. So he can be seen as a social reformer. So it's certainly not just changing yourself, it's actually changing the environment around you. And actually, interesting, the, the attitude towards women was another issue within that time. And bringing women into um, the monastic orders of that time was quite a big social act. Wouldn't be seen so today, but it was a big social act in ancient India of that particular time. So he was a social reformer. So there's no real sense of him saying, just sit there and just concentrate on yourself and change yourself and don't get involved in the environment. Change what can be changed. It's interesting, there's a, there's a particular phrase that's found in the Bhagavad Gita that actually originates in early Buddhism, which is this phrase that you hear... Um, Krishna saying to Arjuna, which is actually engage in action without being attached to the fruit. Yeah? Engage in action without being attached to the fruit. So in other words, we can work towards social change, but don't get angry if it doesn't happen. Yeah? We can do all the best things that we can do to try and affect change, you know, say social change and changes in environmental attitudes and all of the contemporary issues that we have. But what the Buddha is saying, don't be attached to actually that happening, because it might not, because there's so many forces outside of our control. There's things we can't see. There are, you know, forces in which we're embedded within the social historical world that we live in, uh, that we're just not aware of, that are acting on this. And I think anybody who's in being involved in one of these causes will know that. You know, you suddenly find what you think is a simple issue is actually an incredibly complex issue. Uh, it's not simple at all. So I think it's very wise advice to be, you know, engaging in action but not being attached to the fruit of those actions. Coming back to the notion of, in the sense, the second part of, of this, in a way, by changing ourselves, we certainly change our immediate environments. You know, by affecting change within ourselves, by diminishing, to a degree, egocentricity, the ego, the dominance of the ego, the dominance of the self within what we do and the way we are within the world and the way that affects relations with others. In changing our mental attitudes and perhaps marking a movement towards more wholesome mental attitudes, more responsive attitudes rather than reactive attitudes, we do touch others. Let's not forget that. That's why this path is not a selfish path. You know, it's not just about self-improvement. <laughs> you know? And I think there's a big danger of contemporary mindfulness movements suddenly becoming about self-improvement. Uh, in the Buddha's hands, this wasn't just about self-improvement. It was about improving the overall lot of everybody you're with. Because actually, if I'm nicer, kinder, more friendly, even with people I don't like. And the Buddha never says you have to like everybody. 
He says you can be friendly even those to those who you don't get on with. Yeah. In doing that, I improve and lessen the amount of dukkha in this world, the, the amount of suffering, the amount of pain, the amount of distress in this world. So it's not about improving the ego. It's actually by certain actions and activities, again, actions and activities, it comes back to one of the earlier questions, certain actions and activities diminish the strength of the self being involved in action you know, as the kind of centre of all the experience. In many ways, I would actually describe what the process is, is actually getting us outside of ourselves a lot of our time, into the world. You know? If you think, and I think this is particularly true of the modern Western world, we're kind of wrapped up looking in on our own neuroses a lot of the time. And we actually very rarely look outwards and see others' pain. You know, we only see it usually if it touches us, if it impacts on us. Yeah, and if it sort of, you know, um, gets in, 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 in some kind wrapped up in our own particular neurotic pursuits and everything else. So I'm playing this very strongly to make a point here. But we don't often actually engage in actions which take us out into the world and really connect us with others. We sort of like, it's like we're like a little sort of wilting creature that kind of pops out occasionally and, top, and then springs back in again, you know, rather than actually out there in the world. Now it's interesting, and again, you can't really get this in the English language, but it's interesting that these wholesome mental states that the Buddha talks about cultivating, that word that Jenny was using this afternoon, these wholesome mental states that we cultivate actually connect us to others. Whereas if we think about the unwholesome states, now think about this, generosity and friendliness connect us to others. They bring us out of ourselves, they diminish, you know, to give something away, even if it's just your time, I'm not talking about material goods or money or anything like that, even if it's just your time, it diminishes a little of your self-grasping. You know, if I give time to another, if I give time for something, even social action, it diminishes and lessens and my holding on to that sense of self. Whereas, if we think about very negative, well, I'm saying negative, unwholesome, let's use that word, which is the one that the Buddha uses. Think of unwholesome emotions, emotions which actually create dukkha in this world, they actually often cut us off from others. We have this expression in English, and probably there in other languages, I certainly know it's in some languages, but you know, it might not be in your own uh, native languages, but we have this expression in English which is anger blinds. Yeah. Anger makes you blind. Makes you, I mean, interestingly, there's another way we have of putting it in English, which is anger makes you see red. Yeah. Again, they're all indicating a kind of cut-offness, something that cuts us off from others. So what we're attempting to do is not improve a self, but lessen the sense of that dominance of self by developing wholesome emotions that connect us to others. And that's, I don't know if they're, they're not just really giving an answer, I'm giving a response really to your question. Yeah, yeah. I like this, uh, so by, by being compassionate with others, maybe I can achieve compassion for myself as well. Yes, exactly. 
In, interestingly, I, I'll read the quote probably, t yeah, actually I'll read the quote tomorrow night, the full quote, but basically the Buddha is saying, how do I care for self and how do I care for others? By caring for others, I care for self. By caring for self, I care for others. It's an interesting thing. It's not one over the other. Unfortunately, Western culture has tended to put the other in a very, um, what I call the pitying sense of compassion, more. You know, I'm really being productive and useful if I care for others. And what we get often in Western caring professions is what I call compassion deficits. You know, people can't care any longer because they've got nothing to draw on. You know, they actually end up abusing themselves in some way. So caring for yourself is actually taking care of yourself so that you can care for others as well. And, and I'll say a lot more about this in one of the talks. Over to you. <laughs> I knew he'd give a really good answer. So, um, only just one, maybe. I mean, I really, I think, particularly agree with the thing about not being attached to results. And I remember listening to a lovely talk by Joanna Macy, who is a Buddhist practitioner and been a social activist for many, many years, and is currently very engaged with work around climate change. And she said she felt we need to act as if our behavior can really make a difference. You know, we're on the brink of climatic catastrophe. We need to act as if what we do can prevent this. And we may never know in our lifetime whether it's actually already too late. And, and, she, and she related that to the Buddhist idea of intention is what really is important. Outcome is not in our control. Um, and for me, one of the places as well that, that this really... Um, is guided is, is the precepts, the five ethical principles that John talked about on the first night. Each of them can be widened a little to see what, what is its implication more globally. I think in is it Friends of the Earth, they say, think globally, act locally. You know, if we have a, an undertaking not to harm beings or not to take what is not freely given or not to indulge the senses, you know, out of control, whatever then, you know, how might that inform um, what kind of businesses we might support, what kind of things we buy, how might it inform how we feel about energy consumption. Um, and there's no blueprint for what that will look like because it's a personal inquiry. Um, but I, I think these things are not just about, you know, the, the, the little area of my life, but we can see them as as having global implications and maybe not underestimating the, you know, the effect of small actions. I think, was it Margaret Mead who said, never underestimate the effect that a small group of committed people can have on the world. It's actually the only thing that's ever had an effect on the world is, is small groups of committed people. situation. 
I, I want to reestablish relations with this family member. I've, I've sort of mm -hmm. broken off relations and mm -hmm. not spoken uh, with the person um, since it happened. And I, I'd like to reestablish relations. I'd like to, to be kindness, mm -hmm. to, be, to, to show kindness, to be compassionate, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but how can, how can I do that without, uh, because, because that person hasn't, hasn't taken any responsibility, mm -hmm. hasn't, uh, you know, probably doesn't even think what happened was, was wrong, or, mm -hmm. um, and so how can I show kindness and compassion mm -hmm. and restore mm -hmm. that family relationship mm -hmm. without sending the message that what happened was okay? It's okay, or, yeah, yeah. really challenging situation but I, I think what's really important is for me I, I talked about this in one of the groups the, the word we, we we talk about anger covers quite a wide um, spectrum from you know actually kind of losing it you know the anger that makes us see red where we're lost in it and where we just can't act skillfully out of that place and then something that's more a kind of sense of um, of strength and, and having to set boundaries and actually being clear, this was not okay. And um, challenge unskillfulness where it arises. Now the other person may not agree, um, so there's maybe something about making it really, really clear how you feel about the situation, and this is your perspective. And then it's, I guess, a question, can you reestablish communication if, if they don't agree? Are you willing to, you know, to agree to differ? Or is the pain or the, the hurt or whatever too great? Um, but I think it's, it is really important that compassion, forgiveness even, I don't know if there's a word in Pali for forgiveness, but it doesn't mean, oh, it was all right, if it really wasn't all right. Um, and, and that's really challenging because, as you say, they... We cannot, we can never, like we can't control the outcomes of our action. We can't control how another responds. Um, let's think I don't, I don't think there is an easy answer to situations like that. I mean, I don't disagree with anything that Jenny said here because I do think it's about, if you think something is wrong, and particularly if it's wrong morally, ethically, or whatever, I think you have to set your boundaries. You have to make your point about it. Uh, you can make the point that it's wrong and say, still, I want to be in relation with you in some way. It might change it. It might skew that relation. Um, and I think we have to accept that that's a possibility. I think one of the big things that's very difficult for us to accept is that if I am friendlier and I want to re-establish relation, this is going to somehow change the other person. That's again that relinquishing of, of the sense of if I act in some way, which is, you know, compassion is an act. Being friendlier towards this family member who's done something you believe not to be right is still an act if I move towards them. Don't think it's going to change them in that act. The only person that's changing is you in that. And it might be rebuffed. You might say, you know, if you disagree with me, then you know, that's the end of the relationship or whatever. And I think you just have to see that as part of 
perhaps some of the consequences that you can't, you can't have any control over. It then comes down to the intention. If you hold that person in your heart with good intentions and make the move towards them, while still disagreeing with their action and making it clear that you disagree with their action, I think that's as much as you can do. You, know, you can make move forward, that other person has to meet you somewhere if, they're going to re if you're going to re-establish and they're going to re-establish any connection. But I think it would be, personally, I think it would be wrong if it compromises you morally, ethically, to say, I agree with you, or as you say, just to make it seem like it's okay what you've engaged in. And I would actually say this for all forms of, of Buddhist practice is this is not, you know, being compassionate is not to become a doormat. Yeah. It really isn't. You know, um, in Tibetan, they have this wonderful phrase, which is idiot compassion. You know, there's, there's kind of just being idiotic. You know, that you let somebody walk all over you and do all the wrong things and you get into abusive relationships and things like that and say, it's okay because I'm being compassionate. You know, you're just being self-destructive in many ways and seeing that clearly. Don't mix up compassion with that kind of self-destructive tendency. In fact, in... Well, in fact, most forms of Buddhism, particularly in Buddhism, it's very, it's very strongly stressed that sometimes compassion, having compassion for somebody, can actually manifest as anger. You know, I do not want to see you engaging in these actions. Because not only do they hurt others, family members or whatever, but they hurt you, ultimately. They isolate you, they make you cut off, they do all these sorts of things. And so compassion isn't always that kind of soft, friendly, cuddly bit. Compassion actually can be quite strong as well. So, you know, I, don't, I think I've got a bit further than your question, but I think I'm just trying to make clear that compassion isn't just one thing. In a way, is, is, you know, it, that the anger can somehow transmute into something which is a more compassionate response to it, whilst agreeing that they, you know, what they've done is right. There. So I don't, there's no clear answer, but that's kind of, again, a response to what you've asked. Sorry, could you repeat that? Um, I didn't mean to say it, I don't think. <laughs> I think possibly misheard or, or misunderstood. Um, I actually held, held up my hand, it was me that said that. Oh. It was me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said it deliberately, actually. Yes, I did say it. It's, what we're doing at this stage is not following the breath. What we're actually observing observing is the sensations of breathing yeah so at this particular moment in time it's not that you don't follow the breath for the instructions that were being given 
I'm saying what we're actually observing is the sensation of breathing, the physical sensation. So we're not following the length of the breath and the in and out. I mean, some instructions in some traditions, for example, will say you follow the breath from the nose to the navel and then back up again. And that's one way of observing the breath. I was keeping it much more simple at this stage, which is what does it feel like? You know, what does that sensation of the swell of the abdomen the expansion of the abdomen, the contraction of the abdomen, feel like. What is that sensation just at the tip of the nose? That's where we're watching the breath, just in those simple sensations of breathing. I'm not saying it's a never follow the breath, but just for the instructions that were being given, that was the instruction, just to watch the sensations of breathing. So I hope that makes it clear. Can I, can I respond first to this? Because I think yeah, there's something, something very true about what you say. Um, there is a very secularized form of mindfulness, which is being used in very specific settings, um, which is these you know, kind of more clinical forms of mindfulness, which um, is spreading out and going into different areas of society. And it's, and it's very much stripping away the Buddhism, although you know, many of the people I train, for example, and Jenny trains as well, actually have to have a good understanding of the psychology which actually underpins all of this from a Buddhist perspective, as well as all the contemporary cognitive psychology and neuroscience, which also underpins um, some of the, you know, the efficacy of these practices. I do take your um, point 
that actually if we just left it at that and somehow, in, in, in some way, this, and this is my own feeling here, is that it's not actually what the Buddha intended. His path was a pathway to liberation. The word that you use was the word nirvana. And that can be much misunderstood as it is, particularly in the West. Um, nirvana is often seen as a place. It's rather something you do because it's a verb in the original language. It's what's called an intransitive verb. Uh, and indicates something that we're actively doing. So it's actually, as I was saying, actually, interestingly enough, this came up in one of our groups, and I was explaining that the word nirvana should be actually nirvana-ing, because you know, that's what you're doing. You're nirvana-ing. Um, rebirth, well, that's another whole kettle of fish, which you don't have to take, but you can certainly suspend judgment on it. One thing that you can see, and I think I always think of the Buddha as a very practical thinker, is a lot of the stuff is not just doctrine you believe in. That, he wasn't interested in that, and I think that comes across very clearly from the early text. What he was interested in is in people inquiring. He wanted to personally know how things worked. And so even that notion that you mentioned about self, which I'll talk about tomorrow night, it wasn't so much whether there is or there isn't. He wanted to know what this thing called the self was um, and how it worked, if there was such a thing. Yeah, how it how it actually functioned, because you know it's part of our everyday life, isn't it? It's so intuitively there most of the time. It just might be that we grasp it wrongly, we hold it more, you know, we hold it in the wrong way, and things like this. So when we actually place mindfulness back into its Buddhist context, we start to really understand that mindfulness actually affects lots of things and. And we start to discover lots of things. We start to discover, actually, I think, little nirvanas as we go through, as we start to unbind from certain behavioral patterns. Uh, even in secular mindfulness, I think that happens. It's not what the Buddha meant, because he meant complete emancipation from all habits. You know, complete emancipation from every form of dominant habit that we can have, even good habits, you know, because they're habits. Um, this is was you know because when we have a habit, it's not it's not responsiveness; it's a reaction. You know that's what the habit pattern is. And so, in a way, I sympathise with what you're saying because we can sell what the Buddha is doing rather short. But I think, and that's kind of putting it back into Western context again, putting it back into the Western context, is that we don't have to go down the religious route to explore what the Buddha has to say. We certainly don't have to be card-carrying Buddhist members, you know, and subscribe to that, all that stuff. It's more in being engaged in a certain inquiry. And I, I think both of us have tried to stress so far, and I know we both use the language, of being interested and curious about what's going on. And I think that's the basis of discovering something. It's not really like laying out the doctrine of not-self and then saying, believe in it. The Buddha is actually saying, if you observe, you will actually find there is this process going on, this process which I keep on alluding to that I'm going to talk about um, tomorrow night. So I think the, the main spirit of what, that we can take from those early Buddhist traditions, de-religiousizing it, bringing it into a Western context is not a self-help thing. Self-help is there, there, there's no doubt about that. 
but I think we can we can start to explore and investigate in a very very profound way some of the psychology that the Buddha has talked about, and it can be a liberative psychology. Whether we reach the the big nirvana, um, I personally I'm not interested in. I think it's how it changes things, how it changes us, how it changes the world, how it changes our context. Um, my own personal feeling about this is it's a very sublime vision of what human life can be that the Buddha offered us. And it was possible for everybody to be able to live that sublime life. You know, nobody was, uh, no, was, nobody was irredeemable in, in that sense. And I think that's what we can take from it. And if we take that, I think we take the essence of it, not all the religious cultural stuff that goes around it. And actually even the rebirth issue is actually a very religious cultural element of it. <laughs> Not much to add, really. I, I, I think that being a, you know, in any way connected with the Buddhist tradition or the Dharma in the West, it's, it's just very interesting because you know, if we were in ancient or even contemporary Tibet or Burma or Japan and, and practicing Buddhism, we would go to the local temple and we would just take whatever was there and we wouldn't know much about other traditions. We might get some slightly, you know, negative views of them. But in the West we have it's all come to the West and that can be a, a very confusing smorgasbord of different traditions and practices. And we have this Western habit of being a bit dilettante and a bit of this and a bit of that. But you know, I think the pros of it outweigh the, 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 the negatives. We, we can, you know, investigate it in a more objective way, perhaps. And also, when the Dharma, the, the teaching of the Buddha, has gone from its home originally in India to, to lots of different cultures and countries, it's always been modified and transmuted and evolved, for good or ill, <laughs> in lots of ways. And it's taken several hundred years. You know, we're a very early stage in, in the Dharma coming to the West. Who knows what it will look like? Um, but it's understandable in a way for me that well, what it met was a, a culture where the zeitgeist is psychology, therapy, self-development, mm -hmm. philosophy as well. You know, not religion, really. I mean, there are religions, but, you know, it's a more secular culture. And so that's how it's evolving within that and... If we get reborn, we'll be able to find out how it ends up. <laughs> and whether you had a self or not. <laughs> okay, I think we'll, we'll finish there because it's, uh, it's getting late. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.